Thank you, Devin. And in case you did not know this, um, Devin can play the piano as well as the organ. <laughs> and not only that, he also plays the keyboard, kind of like a Grammy-style keyboard, so he can rock it out as well in the first service. So multi-talented and gifted. And what uh, God wants is music that reflects uh, the, the glory and, and message of Christ with enthusiasm, and, um, and uh, God has gifted him in that way. I want to thank uh, the Lord for Meredith uh, sitting in for Allegra, or standing in place of Allegra, I guess, and uh, leading us in worship, and um, we appreciate that. Uh, Allegra is actually with a few of her friends in Whistler, Canada, and uh, she was going down this 75-mile-per-hour bobsled run uh, because that's where they had the Olympics, and I guess you can go there and actually get on those things that go down that fast, so... Um, I don't know if it got up to 75. Well, maybe it got up to 75. I forget what it was, but they, she said that. Well, anyway, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we look to, to God and his word this morning um, and ask him to take this time and use it in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this day in which we celebrate the living Christ, and we pray as we look in your word that you might speak into our lives. And wherever we are in the journey of knowing Christ, whether we're still looking or whether we've already made that commitment, help us to, to know um, what we need to know this day, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever had that experience where uh, someone is trying to t- sell you something urgently, and um, as you were maybe wavering, they began not only to try to persuade you by the, the, uh, the values of that which you might purchase, maybe it can do something that you can't do without, and uh, maybe it is at a price that you can't miss, but when you begin to somewhat hesitate, they say, well, if you don't do it now, the opportunity will be gone. And maybe if it's a, um, it's a vehicle you're trying to purchase, they'll say, I've got someone coming in a half hour and they're going to buy it. Or if it's something on a shelf, they're going to say, you know, this is my last one and there isn't, there isn't a shipment coming in again. If you don't get it, it's gone, all right? And they, they do everything possible to get you sign on the dotted line now. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the last section in the book of Revelation as we've been going through this series. And this series, even as long as we've taken to go through it, uh, we haven't exhausted what we could uh, spend time doing in terms of explaining every little nuance here. But we're going to be looking at a message which I've entitled, Last Call to Respond. And I'm not trying to be a used car salesman here or trying to get you to buy some kind of item that um, I want to somehow get off my shelf. But this is something that God is passionate about, that people, when they hear the message, they don't just think, well, that's, that's something I can think about as long as I feel like it, and I can kind of put it off, and if I never get around to it, that's okay. Because God wants us to realize that, that time is limited in terms of how we can respond to what God wants us to do. And as we get to this last book of the book, and the last chapter of the last book in the book, we're seeing God giving out the invitation one more time. Now, it's not only a used car or a particular item on a shelf that can get you kind of in that mode where you need to make a decision. Have you ever made a subscription to a magazine? And uh, maybe you thought, well, maybe this magazine will really change my life or help me in some area. And so you, you buy it for at least a year, and, and then it doesn't quite uh, do what you was hoping it to do. Either it wasn't a great read or it didn't help whatever was needed to be fixed. Uh, and that was my case. You know, I... Uh, I I subscribed uh, for a year um, a magazine called Golf Digest, all right? 
And my whole hope was when I read Golf Digest that it would change my golf game, that somehow when I got off on the course, I would, I would shoot a little lower score, that my, my drives wouldn't kind of fade to the right or hook to the left or wherever they might go whenever I swing that club. And I thought Golf Digest is the, is the answer to my problem. Well, spending the entire year reading, well, at least looking at the pictures, you know, for an entire year reading the Golf Digest, it didn't, it didn't subtract from my score. If anything, it added to my score because I had more things to think about than I used to think about. Well, at the end of that year, I, I started getting some notifications. And uh, the first notification I got, or one of the notifications I got, was a bright yellow envelope. And in it, it says, this is your last issue. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty important. I better open up and read it. So I, I looked at it in Golf Digest. It says um, that the cover price for 12 issues, which I had just received over the last 12 months, um, the cover price was $59.88. But if I would respond now, I could get 12 issues over a period of a year for $9.97 which is an 83% savings. And I'm thinking, such a deal, all right? But, you know, not being totally convinced, I decided that, you know, maybe I don't necessarily need that golf magazine. I, um, I, I would look at it and I'd give it to other people and they didn't seem to read it either. So, so then I said, I don't really need it. But then the next month came and I got another envelope. And on that envelope it says, last issue warning. And when I opened up, they gave me the same deal. That if I would just do it now, it wouldn't cost me $59.88, but only $9.97, an 83% savings. Do you know what? I actually got six of these. And I continued to get Golf Digest six months, half a year after I had stopped paying for it. Now, there's a reason why they do that, of course. They don't make their money on people who, who subscribe to it. They make their money on the people who advertise in it. And the more people that are supposedly reading it or looking at the pictures, they can sell more advertisement. But the appeal was a pretty simple one. You better decide now because you will not get that issue anymore because this is the last issue, even though it wasn't the last issue or the last issue or the last issue. And sometimes when people read the Bible or hear about the, the, the plea for people to respond to the message in this book, they think it's, again, like a used car salesman or someone trying to sell something off the shelf or a subscription magazine appeal to Golf Digest or some other magazine. They're thinking, well, I, I always got more time to make this decision. And sometimes we do, but we never know how much time we have left. And whether we leave this experience of life the natural way, which we just stop breathing, or Jesus comes again, there's going to come a time where it really is the last call to respond. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, into the last chapter in the last book of the Bible, chapter 22. And, and, and we've got a very simple message here that... I've got a few things to talk about, but it really is kind of the summary of what God does when he wrote this book through human authors, inspired words. Um, he really speaks to two types of people. There's really only two types of people as it relates to, to spiritual issues. It's those who really truly believe in Jesus, and the other side of that coin is those who don't truly believe in Jesus. Or, or to take the focus of this book... It, 
there are people who truly believe that Jesus is coming again, and there are people who don't truly believe that Jesus is coming again. And so at, at the end of this revelation of what is to come, he says, okay, I'm going to make an appeal to you one more time. I'm calling for you to respond. And the response is one for believers and one for people who don't believe. And that's what we're going to try to see this morning. But before we do, I, 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 I do want to try, I'm not going to try to do all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in 42 minutes. But I, I am going to try to at least summarize the book of Revelation in three or four minutes. The message is pretty simple. It's, it's a, a revealing or unveiling. And the unveiling or revealing is about someone and something. The unveiling of someone is Jesus. It's unveiling Jesus a little bit more clearly. And then the some things are what is to come. And in chapter 1, we have the unveiling of Jesus. And actually, it's throughout the book. But particularly, there's a focus on this one who is to come. And he's not coming as a meek and mild preacher in Palestine. He's coming as almighty God in all his power. And though God always sees us through the lens of his love and grace and mercy, but you need to also know, and it says of Jesus, when he comes again, there will be this penetrating look, a fire coming out of his eyes because he sees all and he's coming in judgment. And so the balance is there now of seeing Jesus in all his glory and all his power, all his might. And he's coming not only as Savior, but also as judge. So it's the unveiling of Christ. But then secondly, it's the unveiling of Christ's coming. And so after chapter 1 comes chapter 2. And in chapter 2 and 3, what we have here is, is before he comes, he speaks about what is happening before he comes. And really in God's program, what is, what is really happening is what's happening in his church because this is his church. And the Bible says that he is going to build his church. And as we, as part of God's church, if you, if you know the Lord and are committed to him, we realize both individually and collectively, sometimes we do things well, and sometimes we do things not so well. And so he speaks words of commendation and condemnation. Or to put it more simply, he says some good th- news to the churches, and he says some bad news to the churches. He says, look, this is what you're doing right, and this is what you're doing wrong. And he says, I want you to shine brightly for me. And I want people to see Jesus in you collectively. And he gives, gives them warnings, corrections, and he gives them hope, and he gives them praise. And that's happened throughout the time between Jesus coming the first time and his coming again. And, and so we need to always respond to God's word to say, how can I more live collectively and individually that will give you honor and praise? But then after chapters 2 and 3 begins with chapter Four. In chapter 4 through 19, now we're not just looking at Jesus or his program, which is the church in the now. We're looking at what's going to happen in the future. And this future period of time, which is described from chapters 4 through 19, is this period of, of God's judgment that is to come. And, and he breaks up this whole scenario in a number of different ways. It begins with a period of silence and, and, and the churches are no longer mentioned. And I think that's the catching up of God's people, the rapture. We're we're in God's presence. But the people that are left here, he says, I am unfolding the last of my plan. I was reading uh, something I think Bill Bannon shared with me this uh, past week. And it says in one poll, and there's all kinds, there's endless taking of polls, but four out of ten Americans believe that we're living in the last times and that Jesus is going to come again in their lifetime. 
in the Islamic world, they believe that, that someone's going to come. It's the Mahid. And he's going he's to be the one who somehow starts the whole thing off and ends the end of the age. They also believe that Jesus is going to come, and he's going to come, and he's going to say that the, the Islamic faith is the true faith. And, and just, just for free this morning, I want to tell you, that's not going to happen. All right? That's not going to happen. Uh, but they believe that, that we're in the end times as well. The, the Jewish people are hoping that their Messiah, their Messiah will come the first time. And, of course, we as Christians are believing that Christ is going to come the second time. But as, as it comes to the end of the age, what's going to happen? It's going to be a time of judgment. And it will be not at the hands of men, the global warming that people fear about. It will ha- come at the hand of God. In chapters 4 and 5, we kind of get a glimpse of heaven. And in chapters 6 through 19, we see the judgments of God unfolded. Some by allowing the, the, the substitute Christ, the Antichrist. And anti means either against or instead of. And it's kind of the role of the evil one trying to get his program to work. And really it's only allowed by the hand of God. But God's judgments are unfolded. And he uses three different ways to describe those judgments. called the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And those are just word symbols to illustrate what's going to be unfolding from heaven. The seal judgments are basically seals that are found in a book and it's unfolded. And then you, you read about what's going to be unfolded from this book that only Jesus can, can open. And in chapter 6, what we have is we have these judgments uh, described beginning with peace and then all hell begins to break loose. That will happen in the first half of this seven-year period called the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation. And, and then from chapter 6 on, you have the other judgments coming. And if you've read through the book of Revelation, and sometimes if you reread it, you start getting confused a little bit. But it's, it's somewhat chronological. In chapter 6, you have the seal judgments. I'm going to take more than three or four minutes. I'm, I can already tell. Is that then you have a little bit of background. It gives a little bit more detail. And then you have what comes next, which is the trumpet judgments. And the trumpet judgments are really kind of symbolic of God announcing with a loud voice, this is happening. And unfolding during that last seven-year period of time, other things direct from the hand of God, which will, which will be so obvious, this is coming from heaven. And then you have the, some extra detail. And then in the rest of the chapters, particularly around 16 through, through 19, you have, you have uh, 17 through, through 19, you have what's called the bold judgments. And that's just symbolic of God pouring out like hot lava his wrath upon this earth. The Bible describes this time as a time like no other time, a time in the past, a time in the present, or even a time beyond that in the future. It's a time of judgment. But it's also a time of, of rescuing and mercy of God because the Bible says that, that that period of time which begins with no one knowing God, there will be rescued many from every tongue and every, every tribe and every nation, and people will be brought into the family of God. But most will reject the message of Jesus Christ. And then finally, there's going to be that last call. And then Jesus comes. He comes in chapter 19 in his glory, and he, he defeats the enemies of God. And those who are alive and remain will be brought up into a, a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And in that period of time, is again, is a time of testing and demonstrating who God is, that, that even though he, he, he programs a, an idyllic place here on earth, people will still rebel against him. 
And chapter 20 describes that period of time in which even Satan himself is bound for a thousand years. And he is not allowed to, to tempt and to, to persuade people to run from God. But they will do it in their own heart. And then judgment comes again. One last defeat. And that final judgment, that place of punishment called hell. People who have decided not to put their faith in Christ throughout time will finally have their will be done and they will be eternity in an eternity away from him. Then after chapter 20 comes 21 and 22. And in 21, we spent a couple of weeks, we're described in the scripture that place where we all want to be. That place that we can only imagine what it will be like. And no matter how great of imagination you have, and I have a great imagination. I might not be good at a lot of things, but I have a great imagination. No matter how much I can imagine heaven to be it, it's going to be so much better. And, and with that as a backdrop, he's finally going to land this plane. You know, it's been, it's been hovering in the, the airport for a long period of time. Finally, this is going to end. And he gives the last words. And these last words are a plea for people who believe and a plea for people who don't believe. What, what is the, the plea for people who do believe that he really is coming again? What do, what do they need? What do you and I need to do to respond in light of all that's found in this book? Well, let's look at it this morning. We're just going to put some highlights to it. Revelation chapter 22, beginning with verse 6. And so right after the description of heaven, John is still kind of just spinning with all that he has heard and and seen visually in, in terms of the unveiling of this revelation. And he said to me, this is a heavenly messenger, and he said, these words are faithful and true. All that, you, all that you've heard, it's, it's not just make-believe. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So he's talking about that which will happen, and when it happens, it will happen rapidly. And then he says this. And this is, this is the response or the application of all that he has heard and seen and experienced in chapters 1 through 22, now in 22. And behold, I, now Jesus speaking forth, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So this book in which people are, are somewhat afraid to read or to try to dissect and maybe start and then kind of give up. He says, look, I want you to understand there's an inherent blessing in reading this book. In fact, to understand the blessed, and that sounds kind of religious, what it really means is that there's a happiness involved in just responding to this book. The word blessed can be translated happy. And he ends this book this way, and if you have your outlines or you can see it on the screen possibly as well. It began this way in the beginning of the book. Blessed or happy is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Have you ever been in a situation where you wish that someone had warned you something before you actually did what you did? Why didn't you tell me? I wouldn't have gone down that road and wrecked my car. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have chosen that major if I knew there wasn't going to be any jobs after I spent four years and your money you know, doing that. Whatever it might be. You, know, what, you just wish someone had warned you, you know, about something that, that was going to come to pass. And, and what he's saying here, I want you to understand, I am warning you and the warning people you care about. And, and I want to make you happy because if you go down the right path, you're going to be happy. He said, happy is he 
who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And, and when we long for the Lord's coming, and when we're, our mind is set on things above rather than things below, our life is going to be filled with so much greater perspective on the things that so easily get us down. But let's make it even simpler. We, we sang about that this morning. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. So he's saying in the midst of all that was said here, he said, look at now, now that you've seen Christ and seen what is to come, and we can disagree about all the, you know, the de- or some of the details involved, but he's coming. I-, I want you to understand, this is a commentary on everything that's in this book. When you, when you understand what God wants you to do, simply what? Do it. Just do it. Because if you really trust me and then obey me, that's when you're really going to be happy in Jesus. Now, that sounds good, but it's not always easy to do, isn't it? You wake up some morning, and let's just make it as simple as possible. When you wake up every morning, there's probably things you need to do. It's on your to-do list, whether you write it down or not, some responsibilities you might have, some places you've got to go, some people you've got to see, some assignments you've got to complete. I don't care whether you're in school or whether you're in your neighborhood. There's always, there's always some things that happen. You know, if you notice, bills have to be paid. You know, what, what are, you know, there could be all kinds of things. Or, or maybe even more important, there, there's some people that maybe you need to talk to that there's a friction between, between you and you know you need to make that call or go over and see them and get it right. Or maybe there's someone in your life that's really done something for you and you realize you've never thanked them. Or maybe there's some person who's really needy and, you know, you know I could be a person come alongside them and really help them. But, but as, as those things begin to flood in your mind, whether it's some disresponsibility or, or some kind of, we'll call it a ministry need, you begin to evaluate your day and say, well, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that. And then if someone were there, whether it's someone, you know, with skin on or just the Spirit of God kind of talking to you and, and the question comes, well, why don't you, why, don't, why, why aren't you going to do that? And, and the response is a real deep one, like, well, the reason I'm not going to do that simply is because I don't want to. <laughs> you ever done that? Somebody asked you to do something and, and they're trying to persuade you, you know, like a, you know, like a used car salesman or whatever it might be. And, and then say, why won't you do that? You know you ought to do that. And they say, well, I just simply don't want to. So what motivates us at any time to do something we want we don't want to do when we know we ought to do it? There's got to be some reason that will motivate us. Well, you know what God would say? And we could come up with all kinds of lists. But he said, you know, when you do what you know you ought to do, that's where happiness comes from. Have you ever had a task at home you didn't want to do and you did and afterward you felt really what? Felt really good. You did it. It's done now. You ever put off something you know you should have done, you didn't do it? Well, how do you feel? You feel really bad because <laughs> it's still there. Or, or, or just an opportunity, an opportunity to be a help to somebody or, or come alongside them and encourage them. And somehow you don't get around it. And you just, man, I, I know I should have gone over there. I know I should have called them. I know I should have done something. Or, or maybe there's a, a need that you could volunteer to. You know, no one's doing it. You know, I could do that. And you just kind of put it you don't do it. And what what we think about is just a missed opportunity. What God is saying, you've missed happiness. In, in your outline or your Bible study this week, there's all kinds of questions related to obedience and blessedness. Um, 
and I probably didn't even put the best one in your outline, but in 1 John 14, 15, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, God wants us to respond to the words in this book because it's, it's that which we get and receive joy from when we obey God. Because that's how we know we're really trusting him because at that point we are convinced that the Father knows best, right? Remember that old, old sitcom or where they called that? The Father knows best. And when the Father knows best, when he, when he instructs you to do something, if you do it, you know that's what's best. And it's an act of love. And so what he's saying here, blessed is he who heeds, who does these words and follows what's in this book. Secondly, it's also reflective when we understand this book is it will respond, we'll respond not only in joyful obedience, but we'll respond in true worship. And we're going to look at what, not, what true worship is not. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these, these things. Are we supposed to worship angels? No. In fact, that's what happens right next. Verse 9, but he said to me, the angel, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of the book. Worship who? God. So as we read this book, and again, as we see Jesus more clearly, the response is not only joyful obedience, but it's also worship. Now, worship is a, it's pretty religious, and that's a religious word. I mean, you're not going to talk about worship too often outside of a place like this. Sometimes you will, but not a whole lot. But let's just break down worship as simply as possible. The Anglo-Saxon word for worship really means worth-ship, which means the idea that you place value on something. And then you begin to realize, okay, worship is involved in all kinds of things in my life because there are a lot of things that are valuable to me, things that I, I love doing or enjoy doing or love seeing, whatever it might be. And, and what he's saying here is you think about what's most valuable in your life that gives most you consider as worthy of anything beyond anything else that, that is in your life. That's God. And as, as John was overwhelmed by what he had experienced, and we get overwhelmed by experiences. We love, I love new experiences. I love doing different things. But that's not God. And as John got this, this revelation, these words, these pictures of what is going to happen in the future, he, he just... He responded and said, this is worth more than anything I've ever experienced in my life. And he just bowed down to the messenger. He said, no, 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 no. This is just the message. The messenger, this is is just the the information. And I'm the messenger bringing the message. But it's all about the one in heaven. So it's, do do we celebrate the gifts or the giver of the gifts? And so the response to this is that we're just overwhelmed that we can know the God of this universe and give him praise. In Revelation 19.10, just a couple chapters earlier, John did the same thing. He fell down and worshiped at the feet of, of an angel, a, a heavenly, a heavenly messenger. Now, we never have a problem like that, do we? It, how, how about people that we've put on a pedestal, maybe in the Christian faith, and when they, when they fall, what does it do to our faith? We begin to think, well, maybe God isn't who he is because look at what happened to this person who, who said they were so much in love and believed in that person. Look what they've done. And God is saying, that, that's not who you worship. You worship God. And, and so how should we respond when we understand the book of Revelation and who 
is coming. And what is coming? We ought to respond in joyful obedience. We ought to respond in true worship. And then he goes on and he says something kind of strange in verse 10. And he says, and he said to me, again, the angel, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, whenever we send out a card to someone and put a stamp on it, um, and before we put it in the mailbox or take it to the, um, the mail carrier, whatever it might be, what do we usually do with the envelope? We, we seal it, don't we? And if you put a name on it, when it gets to a particular home, there might be multiple people in the home, who's supposed to read that which is in the, in the what, what, which person is supposed to read that which is in that mail that you just sent them? The person whose name is on it. Okay, so you've restricted those who can receive the messages in that to the person who is, whose name is on it, and they have to open up that sealed thing to be able to get what's inside. What he's saying to... John, he says, hey, don't seal up the words that's in this letter. I want who to read it? Everybody to read it. And there were times where Jesus did not say that to all the people who encountered him, right? Sometimes he'd heal people and said, don't tell anybody. And what would they do? They would tell everybody, right? So the people he told to be quiet would speak. Now he tells us, okay, tell everybody. And what do we do? We keep quiet. <laughs> and he's saying, look, don't seal this up. This message of who Jesus is and he's coming again. Let everybody know this. Don't keep this to yourself. And that's the message of, of, for God's people. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both locally and globally. So as we think about understanding Jesus more clearly and what is to come, we ought to be more committed to joyfully obeying him, desiring to truly worship him. And then thirdly, we would boldly want to witness for him, unseal the letter that's being sent out so everybody can read it. And of course, the people particularly God wants us to reach are the people that are in our relational world, our oikos, people that, that we know at work or at neighborhood or at school. Yes, we need to speak to people. And he told that to John. And then fourthly, we need to be real. And I put it this, we need to have real faith. Because he says something kind of strange here. Sometimes the Bible says some things strangely. Look at this, verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Now, did you know that was in the Bible? So next time, uh, you know, uh, if you're living under your parents' you know, authority and you do something wrong, say, hey, the Bible told me. Not only to do wrong, but still do wrong, all right? And then it goes on and says, um, you can do that. Try that at work, too. That might go off really well. And, and the one who's filthy, still be filthy. You know, they say you go out in the backyard and you, you, you're clean up some stuff. Maybe you, I know some of you really are really good at gardening. And, um, and let's say you get all muddy out there. You know, come into the house and maybe the floors have just been mopped or maybe it's just been uh, vacuumed. Just come in there all what? Muddy. And you could say, well, that's what the Bible says. If you're filthy, still be filthy. But then he goes on and he says, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy will keep himself holy. That doesn't make sense at all, does it? What, what, what does this really mean? What, what are you saying? Look, at, as, you've, as you've heard this, and let me even speak to those who say you do believe, let's just be really honest here. If you really do believe 
then, then I do want you to practice righteousness. But if you say you believe and you really don't believe, just keep on doing what you're doing because you did not fool me in the first place. If, if you're living a life that's wrong, just keep living wrong. And if you're living a life that's filthy, just keep living filthy. Because you need to realize that you, that you aren't part of God's family. And so you've got to stay in that world you're in to the point where you get so sick of it, you want to change. You know the hardest people to reach? The hardest people to reach are the people who are convinced they don't need to be reached. The, the, the people who, who need a Savior are people who are convinced they're sinners, Right? And so he's telling them, look, at if, if you think you're righteous out there, if, you think you're, if, you, if you're doing wrong and not acknowledging it, then just keep on doing wrong. If you're filthy, just keep on doing filthy. But on the other hand, if you are righteous, if you're really one of my children, live it out. In James it says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. We're not saved by our works, but if we do have a faith that works, it will show that in our works. If, we're, if we have a faith that saves, it will be a faith that shows. And we need to recognize that Jesus is coming to reward those who are living out the life. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. You know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty sobering, challenging statement, isn't it? Just to think. As we go through in our Christian life, God is going to evaluate how we've lived for him. Has our faith been real? Has it been genuine? When he comes, he's going he's gonna to reward us for that which is done which will last and that which will done that will not last. So let's be real. So as he ends this book, he says something to those who believe. He says, be obedient, joyfully obedient, because that's where happiness comes from. Worship, but worship in a true way. Worship the true God. See him as, a, as the one of highest of, of value and worth. Uh, unseal the message. Don't. Don't hide it. Be bold in your witness. Be real. Don't be hypocritical. Don't, don't deceive yourself. Be real. And I'm going to come and reward. Well, quickly, what does he say to those who don't believe? Look at, uh, and I'm just going to say this pretty rapidly this morning. There, there are things that people who don't believe, they need, what they need to do. And the first one is you need to look at Jesus again. In Revelation 22, 13, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, that is an amazing statement. I can't imagine any normal human being making a statement like that. I just want to let you all know out there, I am the A to the Z. You know, I've been from the very beginning to the very end, and I am both the first and the last. I, that's just incredible. How could anybody be that? He goes on and says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the, the gates into the city. He says, I am the one who is everything, and I want you to know that only those who have their, their lives washed, and it doesn't mean they washed them, but they wanted their, their lives washed, their robes washed, they will experience being able to enter into the gates of that city, which is heaven. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immortal, immortal persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Not everyone's getting in because not everyone has had their sin dealt with. And then he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to these things. For the church says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
you ever, have you ever lived in a place where it's not like Orange County where we get basically sunshine every day, where maybe, you know, it's, it's overcast nine months out of the year or it's just kind of a dark place to live. You don't see the sun that often. It's, it, they say that the level of depression is much higher in places where there's not a whole lot of light. And what he's saying here, I want you to understand that this one that you need to look at again, he is the source of light that brightens up life. But I guess I would put it this way. If you haven't come to that place or you know people who haven't come to that place where they, they, they believe fully and completely in Jesus, have them take another look at Jesus. Now, a lot of people don't come to faith in Christ because they look at his followers, right? And they see how, how much we fall short. Or they, they kind of, they read the people who, about, they read from people who don't believe in Jesus and they somehow get convinced. And they're reading kind of secondhand. And what they need to do is go to the primary source. Christianity is all about Jesus. You can take Muhammad out of the Muslim faith and you still have the Islamic faith. You take Jesus, you take the Christ out of Christianity, you have nothing. It's all about Jesus. In many ways, I guess even for us who believe, it's good to answer the question, why do you believe? Why do you believe that? that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Savior, he's, he's your Lord, that you've committed your whole life. Why? 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 And think it from a different lens. If you were to take a fresh look at Jesus, why would you still be convinced that he ought to be the person you commit your life to? And as you look at that, there, there could be multiple reasons. One is you looked at how he's made a difference in other people's lives. In many ways, that's so convincing. You say, I, I know a person that was one way, and then he came to know Christ, or she came to know Christ, and their life was completely changed. Or, or, or maybe you look at another reason. You say, well, you know, as, as I just look at Jesus, either what he said is just foolishness, or, or maybe, maybe it's true. If Jesus was the Alpha and Omega, the A to Z, the first and last, the beginning and the end, then he'd have to live a life that was perfect. You know, there are a lot of people who criticize Jesus for all kinds of things, but, you know, they look at his life, they can't point a finger at anything he ever did or said that didn't measure up to a holy standard. Well, if, if, if Jesus was who he claimed to be, he'd have to have some kind of a miraculous birth. Oh, yeah, I guess he's supposed to have a virgin birth. Well, if he really was God, then, then he would conquer life's greatest question. Well, what happens after death? Oh, that's right. He, he died and then he rose again. Well, why should I believe it? Well, there, there is an empty tomb. Well, maybe they, made, maybe they made it all up. Well, why didn't they present the body? Well, maybe they just kept lying about it. Well, why would they lie about something that never gave them any physical reward, only brought them persecution and death? Well, if I were to believe in Jesus, then he, there, there had to be some prophecy. Well, that's right. There's all kinds of things said about Jesus that came before. If God were to become a man, he would be just like Jesus. So take a look at Jesus. Either he was, as C.S. Lewis said, either he was a liar or a lunatic or he was Lord. And so he appeals to him at the end. Secondly, real quickly, if you haven't believed in Jesus, take another look at Jesus. Secondly, realize, understand that the invitation is still open. Look at 
Revelation 22, verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the the church that says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And then verse 17 particularly. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who, wish, who wishes to take the water of life without cost. He tells people to come. This is at the end of the book. The invitation is open. We began this, this message, well, you know, the last call. You know, is this, is this a used car salesman trying to get some, somebody to sign on the dotted line before you get out the door? The invitation is open. Some people don't care that the invitation is open. Other people, as they hear the invitation, they're amazed that it's still open because they feel they don't deserve the invitation because of their life been filled with sin and how could God love someone like them? And, and God is saying, come, just come. Jesus was the one compassionate and forgiving for all who felt unworthy. And the real reality is everyone's unworthy. And he says, come. And then finally, we need to realize that time is short. And that when Jesus comes, he's coming quickly. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Don't mess with God's revelation. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Don't mess with God's revelation. And then verses 20 and 21, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming. How? Quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Come. Amen. He's coming quickly. All of us at times, are, when we have things to do or people are coming over, we're wondering, when does this have to be done? Or when are you coming over? Because you, you want to be ready. You want to be prepared. And sometimes we can put it on a calendar or we can put it on a, a timetable and we, we can pinpoint when it's going to happen. But other times we just can't. But we might realize in, in that circumstance we're in that it, it, it could come at any moment because that time is, is near. And what are you saying to those who haven't come to the point where they truly believe? He said, the time is now. Because when I come, it will be so quick. There'll be no time to respond. God wants all of his people, those who believe and don't believe, to be ready. Different messages to two different groups of people, but pointed for all of us to be ready and prepared till he comes. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for anyone here this morning that hasn't made that step of faith. Might they not put it off? Help them look at Jesus one more time. Help them understand the invitations for them. And if they're convinced, then their commitment is, Dear Lord Jesus, I give you my life. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Make me a new person on the inside. 
I want to follow you. And when they pray that prayer and mean it in their heart, then, then you'll answer that prayer. And then, Father, for us to know you, might, might we realize that, that our lives are not our own, that we are called to live in light of who you are and what you're doing and going to do. Help us to obey you with joy in our hearts. Help us to worship you freely and faithfully. Help us to desire to get the message out and not seal it. And help us to be real and genuine. Father, we don't want to be posers. We don't want to be those who say one thing and do another. Help us to be real. And Father, in the midst of all this, Father, might you be lifted up and honored. And Father, we pray as John did, Lord, Lord, come and come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close our time together.